Hello and welcome to the Wholehearted Healer Podcast. My name is Dr. Avine Banish and I will be your host. This is the weekly podcast that helps women pause in their busy lives, drop into the heart, and remember their next right step. I am so happy that you're here. Hello and welcome to the podcast. This is Dr. Avian Banish, and you're in for a treat today. I have a wonderful conversation coming up with Dr. Jacob Lieberman. And Dr. Lieberman is a really amazing being. He is a pioneer in the fields of light, vision, and consciousness. He's the author of a book that I really love entitled Luminous Life, How the Science of Light Unlocks the Art of Living. And he is just a very engaging human to have a conversation with. I think you're going to get a lot out of his wisdom. One of my favorite quotes from his book is, The intelligence of life summons us through light. Life and light are inseparable. I will put a link in the show notes to his book, Luminous Life, so you can check that out. And just before we get started, I wanted to give a shout out for a program that I am kicking off January 3rd, entitled Wholehearted Weight Loss. It's an eight-week wisdom circle, um, and it really focuses on not just losing weight, but really in managing our mind and our mindset around weight. And I'm just finishing up the fall circle um, of Wholehearted Weight Loss, and we've had really wonderful successes from that program, not just in shifting a number on a scale, but also in shifting mindset mindset and outlook and what we think is possible for ourselves. And so if you're at all interested, I encourage you to check it out. Um, you can find more information at my website, avinebanish.com backslash journey. And I will also put that link in the show notes. But for now, I in- invite you to sit back and enjoy my conversation with Dr. Jacob Lieberman. Have a great week. Okay, so welcome to uh, the Wholehearted Healer podcast. I'm really thrilled this week to have Dr. Jacob Lieberman, who wrote Luminous Life, which is a book that when I read it, I really felt a kindred spirit in the world. I heard him speak first. Um, I was in a program with Donnie Epstein a few years ago called Alchemy, and he, um, he was interviewed by Donnie, and it was just really thrilling. As many of you know, I'm an ophthalmologist, and light is very important to me. Uh, not only in my work, but in my spiritual journey. And I really feel like um, Dr. Lieberman is just a wisdom teacher in this area. So I'm really excited. Thank you so much for being here. It is a mutually wonderful pleasure. And so, you know, I I have read your book multiple times. I, re- I gave it a reread last week, knowing that we were going to speak. And I guess I would just love to start for people who may not know your work, um, just a little background about you and how you found your way to to this spiritual work, really, with light. I, I think rather than how I found my way is how the way found me. Perfect. <laughs> um, gosh, where even to begin? Uh, I've been, I think I was born with very little skin. I always uh, was incredibly sensitive from the time I was very small. My mother used to say, oh, you're just too sensitive. Mm -hmm. And um, 
I can remember when I was 10 or 11 years old having flashes of things that would come to me. I didn't know from where. And that has been going on throughout my life. However, now it's not once in a blue moon. It's actually what's going on almost all of the time for me. And so what what my life experiences have demonstrated to me is that we are continually being guided by something other than what we recognize as the mind. Yes. And it is not so much what we're thinking about as to what, and this is not the right way to say it, but what is thinking about us? Let me see if I can, if I can explain. A tree, an animal in the wild doesn't do anything. Animals don't exercise. Trees don't try to create their own reality. Something literally moves them so that they could, to use today's words, manifest or fulfill their purpose for being. An apple tree creates apples. It could meditate all day and study with the greatest teachers, but it would never make bananas. Mm -hmm. And yet we are indoctrinated to believe that we could make bananas. Some of us could, but some of us are designed for apples. And so what I've noticed in my own life is that something silently moves me in one way or the other and brings me to a place um, of humility. It humbles me because it's like, oh my God, you know, like, wow, how did that occur? There is the tendency when this occurs for most people to say, oh, I had a great idea. But what, because the mind wants to in some way claim ownership because we've been conditioned to believe that it is the captain of the ship, if you will. But what I've come to see is that this wisdom that is funneled into all living things is anonymous. It comes from whatever the animating force of life is. And we have many different names, but none of them have anything to do with what it is. It's just that the mind likes to put a label on things. And in fact, I found myself many years ago saying, it's not the disease that kills you, it's the diagnosis. It's the label that is almost impossible to rid from the mind once you hear it. And yet if the label wasn't there, or if we could forget, then perhaps the possibility of anything is available. So in terms of my life, um, 
I was a, a child that worked very hard but didn't do very well in school. So, of course, I went out to prove to the world that I was exactly what I didn't think I was, smart. Okay. So I got degrees. I did all kinds of things. I became nearsighted in the process of working very, very hard. Uh, and then in 1971, I had a profound experience while I, I was in my optometric training. And um, I did some some vision training, what might some people might call a vision exercise. And right in the midst of it, within seconds, it was almost like a light went off in my brain. Something got innervated that had not been innervated or I didn't recognize it before. And all of a sudden, uh, presence bestowed its, its essence onto me or what people would call attention, except there was no tension of a, with this. <clears throat> and I went from a C student to a Dean's List student for the next two years. How, I don't know, but something got turned on. So I realized that, that the eyes and the brain were not separate, but one were the external satellite dishes of the other. Uh, and then in 1976, I had a very profound experience where I went in, into uh, my daily meditation practice, which I had been doing since 1971, and had an experience that people would call today an out-of-body experience, except I'd never heard of such terminology back then. <clears throat> I just knew that my eyes were closed, my glasses were on the seat next to me, and yet everything was crystal clear, not only optically clear, but everything was clear. The, the, the mind totally silenced, and there was just a sense as if everything was known, except there was no knower to know everything. There just was... I don't know, I call it a state of isness because I have no better word. Anyway, when I came out of that experience, my eyesight was clear. And at first, I was like amazed because at that time I was nearsighted. I had a significant amount of astigmatism. Mm -hmm. And I didn't see well without my glasses. I needed them to dry. I certainly couldn't see the eye chart to make sure my patients were reading the right things. So that was astounding to me for about five minutes. And then I got terrified because it's like, wait a minute, what's, you know, do I have a brain tumor? What, what's going on here? I didn't know. And I went to my office and I examined myself, which I'd never done in my life, sitting behind the phoropter and <laughs> playing with the, you know, putting in a bunch of lenses that would make things blurry and then playing around until everything seemed clear. And this was after sitting in my chair and reading 300% better without my eyeglasses on. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was... That was both terrifying and exhilarating simultaneously. And when I 
started to check the optical measurements of my eyes, I figured, well, if I can see clearly without straining or squinting, maybe my prescription has reduced or maybe it's disappeared, even though I was led to believe that's not possible. Me too. And so, yeah. And so I came out from behind my instrument. And even though I'm seeing 300% better, the measurements in the device are almost identical to what's in my glasses. And that became really a conundrum for me. I could understand if I was seeing better and my prescription had weakened, but I couldn't understand how I could be reading better and my prescription had not changed because I was led to believe we see with our eyes. Right, and eye training, you know, because you and I are both um, trained in that, it's really, the eyes are seen as mechanical machines that have a specific prescription needed for glasses correction. Yeah, yeah. And so for the next four years, between 76 and 80, I was involved in an ongoing experiment I called an experiment on the workings of my mind, because at the time... I was sure that it was my mind. Mm -hmm. And so I referred to it the way everyone was conditioned to refer to it. And I had this idea, wow, is there a button? Is there a master key somewhere in my head that if I could just innervate it, um, I could discover something about the experience I had because I was so excited about it. I wanted to share it with everybody. Mm -hmm. I just want... Well, of course, um, when I attempted to share it with my colleagues, they all said, oh, that's blur interpretation. You know, it's all in your head. But then I would get examined by different colleagues and they would check me and no one could make heads or tails of it. So now it's been, I guess, 45 years. I've never worn glasses since. On November 24th, just the day before Thanksgiving, I was 74. I don't wear any glasses for distance. Mm -hmm. I don't wear any glasses for near. I get visual exams every year, both optometrists and ophthalmologists. Both of them shrug their shoulders. They don't understand how I see as well as I see with with the measurements of my eyes. The nearsightedness that I used to have has totally disappeared, but now I'm farsighted to almost the same degree I was nearsighted, and now I have even more astigmatism. It should be more difficult to read but I spend all day reading and so on. So in response to your question, life has um, guided me on thousands of experiences, direct experiences, not things I've read, but things that stopped me in my tracks and have allowed me to realize that things are not as we think they are, 
And I often share with people because there's so much talk today about belief systems and changing belief systems. And I found it absolutely fascinating when I were, looked up the word belief in the thesaurus and discovered that it means the same as thought and idea and concept and hypothesis and so on. But then my eyes went down to the antonyms and I found this extraordinary word hidden in the antonyms of belief, truth. And I said, oh my God, truth means the opposite of belief, which essentially is telling you that pretty much everything you think, if not most everything you think, isn't the case. And immediately I went to Google because we all have all these fears and ideas all the time. And do they ever rarely turn out to be what it is? And so I start looking into Google and lo and behold, over 91% of the things we're frightened of, they're not real. So we are being guided, most people, by ideas, mental ideas that don't match up with reality. And so we, in the, the lack of congruity and coherence between mentality and reality ends up creating the biggest cause of stress, uh, of disease, stress. So my life has really been about how does one experience some level of contentment? None of us are going to avoid all stresses. None of us are going to avoid getting sick at times or worrying about money or, God forbid, a, a relationship ends. And, you know, you have a family and I'm a family guy. And so we're all impacted uh, by these kinds of things. And there's no way to av avoid them. And yet there is a level of life which I guess um, is equivalent to, to um, health and happiness. I call it contentment. It's not so much related to something happening good in my life or not so good. It's, it's a level of comfort knowing that whatever occurs in one's life your system will respond appropriately in the same way as your blood pressure rises and falls and your respiratory system expands and contracts. And I mean, we spend so much time talking about making things happen and yet physiologically, nothing is designed to initiate action. Everything is responding to some invitation from life, something from life. And so I find that I am less concerned with the conversations with the external world and the silent conversations or directives that I'm continually noticing from where I do not know. Mm -hmm. And I love that. And, you know, for me, 12 years ago, I had 
I began having mystical experiences where I would sort of be absorbed into a void, but light was the light was nourishment. It was love. It was information. And it was more information than my human mind could process. But I was that that sense of contentment, that knowingness it was there. And yeah. so I would love I love how you talk about it. so since that time, light um, I've always been fascinated when I'm in clinic and, you know, seeing light coming from eyes, this idea of, of both eyes being receptive and projective. But I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about light that we're on this journey to once again become light and this striving versus thriving and how most of, you know, most people listening to this, myself included, we get caught up in this striving and even the way I asked the question, like making things happen versus receiving the light. Could you talk about that? Sure. Um, the first thing that flashes into my awareness is that in 2018, while I was on the book tour for Luminous Life, part of the tour took me to Europe and I was in, um, uh, in the Czech Republic in Prague and I was asked to speak one evening at the University of Economy. And of course I said, yes, I pretty much say yes whenever I'm invited, but I don't plan. None of my talks are ever prepared. They are totally live. I mean, totally live. And so, um, one, a young man introduced me and I sat down uh, on a chair in the stage and I looked out at several hundred people and all of a sudden what came to me is, what am I doing here? And so I shared with them that here I was invited and I said, yes, but this is a university of economics. What am I going to share with them? And then as soon as I shared, what am I going to share with you? All of a sudden, everything came. And what came was, wow, economy means efficiency. Optimal economy is invest zero, get back 100%. Mm -hmm. Where do we see that phenomenon? Well, we don't see some big strong person in the heavens moving the planets around the sun. They just seem to orbit on their own. They have a journey they're all on and something animates them. We see that this is happening within the human body. Uh, we think we're breathing, but in actuality, something is breathing us. If something all of a sudden begins to chase an animal, the animal doesn't have to think about running. Running takes over the animal. All of the animal's functions increase according to the speed, the performance that's required, and then decrease when it's appropriate. And so I realized that in mother nature and in the human body, 
they follow this law of economy. And it's also related to light. Maybe you've gone to the beach and somebody's playing with a frisbee with their dog. And they toss the frisbee and the dog seems to know precisely the route to take to get the frisbee exactly when it's in the air. Amazing. How do they do that? Well, what's fascinating is light always takes the most efficient route. The body is guided by light. And so you see this in creatures of the wild. They have this knack, no matter where they have to get to, to get to in the most efficient time. So something is guiding them. So there's another place we see optimal economy. It's this phenomenon that scientists and physicians have incredible difficulty explaining. And um, where I, I was always aware of this, but many, many years ago, uh, someone that I knew whose name I cannot remember right now, they were the first director of the Department of Alternative Medicine in NIH. And they wanted to do an experiment to, to or, or uh, they wanted to do some research on hundreds of gold standard studies to see what actually supports the healing process. And so they looked at hundreds of pharmaceutical studies on medications. And when they compared the efficacy of the medication to placebos, there was not a significant difference. So then they said, well, let's see what happens if we look at mock surgeries. Now you don't see many mock surgeries right. where someone takes someone under and says they're gonna do something and doesn't do it. But they found five or seven very good studies on mock surgeries for specific conditions that have very specific therapeutic um, processes that you would uh, use on those positions, surgical procedures. And when they checked those, they found almost no difference again with the technique and the placebo. So here's op optimal efficiency, a placebo. You get nothing, you give nothing, you get everything. What this physician uh, started noticing is that when the provider of the service and the receiver of the service both felt good about what was being done, regardless of the approach, whether it was ma massage therapy, a hug or a surgical procedure, pretty much across the board, you got about an 80% success rate. But if one or both did not feel good about it, it went down to 35 to 40%. Every time you add a, another control to a study, you lessen the effectiveness of the treatment. And what they notice is that when a physician does a technique in their office, 
very often they get beautiful results. But when a research center says, I want to check whether that really works, the results are significantly less. And people ask me, well, why is that? I said, well, first of all, what brought you to the doctor's office? And most people say, well, I found it, you know, online or something. But there's usually something intuitive that moves them to one physician versus another or one one uh, type of procedure versus another. There are all these factors like the relationship when there's resonance mm -hmm. and our limbic brains literally start to regulate each other's physiology just because we feel at home. And so uh, what this researcher found is that the primary factor in healing is the relationship. And that is so important. So what I find is you mentioned the spiritual journey and people meditate for years and years, but often don't find it. They may find it in meditation, but the real meditation is your life. Not a sitting down for 20 minutes, even though that's a beautiful uh, experience. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so people are into doing things. Oh, I'll become a vegan, or I will do yoga, I will meditate, I will follow a teacher. All of these things are wonderful. Uh, in the 60s, people used to experiment with different psychedelics to open a window. But once the window is open, you don't need to open it again. So people get stuck on the technique versus the opening that, that it creates in one's life. And so what I love is what you and I are experiencing right now. We've never met We've never seen each other. We get on a Zoom call just 25 minutes ago or so. And as you're speaking, what I'm feeling is, oh, I'm so glad to be here. Why mm -hmm. am I glad to be here? This person and I, we have a connection, even though we've never had a connection that we're aware of. And all of a sudden, each of us forgets whatever problems we had just before we connected. Oh, that little pain in my back is not there. Oh, my financial concerns, they're out the window. And so birds of a feather flock together. When we connect and our tuning forks begin to to synchronize, it's the same thing that happened when you gave birth to your children and the physician delivered them and brought them to you and you brought it close to your left breast and at a certain point, the two heartbeats synchronize and there was just one. One what? We don't know, but one. And my sense is that that's what actually triggers the awakening, the experience of that state is, 
as I say, love is the answer regardless the question. We just connect with a like-hearted individual, or it could even be a our dog or our cat, doesn't make any difference, or a young child, and we're in heaven. Yes. We're in heaven, and so I'm not sure I covered your, your question exactly, but this is where it took me. I love that. Yeah, and I, you know, that that idea and, and what I've experienced, direct experience, is that that light seems to be um, one of the the foods, or maybe the food, even in relationship. There's light moving right. between us, between right. the airwaves, or where you know. Right. Um, and I love your writing about trust. This this that we don't have to hustle for our worthiness but we just that that awareness is curative yeah that if we can be open to even where our eyes I, I love how you write about the experiment you did about whatever you noticed was yours to do because i yeah. feel like that is such wisdom and if if we did that as a society life would be very different but what's really interesting is we don't notice it. It actually noticed us. That's why we said it caught my eye. It grabbed me and it literally took me there. And we think that we look, but we don't look. We see the something brings us to whatever is the next thing in our field of awareness that requires our attention. If we're driving down the road and someone coming the other way is talking on their cell phone and doesn't see that there's a stop sign, something in our field picks up that and then we step on the brakes. It isn't that we look, it is that our field of awareness picks up the invisible before it's visible. And so keep in mind, the cells of the eyes can detect a single photon. Now, that's the edge of quantum mechanics. It, it essentially says that we are designed to detect the formless before it is rendered into form. And that is what people call intuition, mm -hmm. a feeling, but it is not a feeling. We just don't have a word for it. It's actually a knowing. And the way that occurs with light is in 2017, the Nobel Prize was won by three U.S. scientists that discovered the molecular basis by which plants animals and humans harmonize themselves with mother nature because their system is inseparably always dancing with the continual changes of the light cycle throughout the day and the night. And People think it's light and darkness, but it's all the spectral changes that are happening throughout. And it's happening at night as well. It's just a subtler type of light. 
we get confused between light and brightness. Light is invisible. Brightness is a perceptual phenomenon, just like color. Color doesn't exist in the brain, doesn't exist in mother nature, but through the interaction of energy called light, a perceptual uh, apparatus that humans have, and something called awareness or consciousness, which very, very few people actually have a true sense of. Because consciousness is not the mind we're aware of. It's something beyond that. It's a mindless mind. It's an empty mind. It does not have preference and There isn't my consciousness and yours. All living things drink from the same ocean. We are all inseparably extensions of an ocean of consciousness. And so consciousness has no point of view. It's just a field of knowing, a field of observation. That's why when, when you ask... Uh, People, like when Einstein was asked, how did you develop the theory of relativity? He started laughing. He said, oh, that happened while I was playing piano. Yeah. Almost all the great discoveries, when you ask the person that we say discovered it, they will honestly let you know they don't have any idea how it came. And... That, for me, is the cutting edge uh, where I'm at in my life right now, which is, I think we have all been led to believe that what we call the conscious mind, the mind of worry and so on, that we label thinking, for me, it's sort of like death insurance being called life insurance. But uh, so we call worrying most of the time thinking. It sounds very intellectual. I think it's so important for us to begin to really recognize that the wisdom is not coming from us. It's coming to us and through us free of charge and if we could share with children in school how learning occurs, which is not through working, but through noticing the awareness that's cured. If we could share that with children, the ones that are meant to be physicians would just naturally go into that. The ones that are naturally interested in building would go into that. The dancers would become dancers. The singers would become singers. But the approach that we take is such that we are conditioned like Pavlov's dogs yes. to salivate when there's no food and to work at things that are really designed to, to just inspire us so we live our life from a place of inspiration rather than from a place of desperation. 
and by the way, when I mentioned the Nobel Prize in Light, what we know is that our system is receiving information about from light, which is totally invisible, way before we have any awareness consciously of it. And each of our 100 trillion cells is responding to that light energy and orchestrating its internal function so that it gets to dance beautifully with mother nature. And that's happening without us. That's happening throughout the day and throughout the night. And just like if I was traveling from Maui to Colorado, when I arrived, I might notice some jet lag because my biology is in Maui and yet my physical body is in Colorado. When our system is not synchronized with Mother Nature because we are living according to our ideas about life rather than nature itself, we're in a chronic state of jet lag, out of sync, out of sync. And that's where I believe dis-ease gets its starting place. Agreed. And I, I think... The HeartMath Institute, we've talked about heart coherence on this podcast, and it seems to me that the heart is, a, is perhaps the best way to tune that and to overcome jet lag. You know, it's, um, as I said, love is the answer regardless the question. Our hearts uh, come into coherence when we feel love when we feel loved, when, when we are just naturally appreciating. And when I say naturally appreciating, you can't be loving. You either are or you're not. You cannot fake it until you make it. It's just a, another silly idea. So if you come to a place in your life where you notice little small things. You go to your favorite breakfast place and, and the server is taking beautifully care of you. I never miss the opportunity of noticing that and sharing with them about that. You know, your mama did a great job. <laughs> you know, something because we think we're going to change the world because we have a million different laws and mandates and this and that and so on. But this shift happens one moment at a time, one person at a time. Each time we, we touch each other in some way, the drop hits the still lake and something starts to to move out and touches others. And for me, that's a, a very, very major piece of it. And, you know, we've never even touched about 
light as a therapeutic tool, mm -hmm. uh, which of course you would use when you're doing some surgical interventions and so on. I use light to help people notice the aspects of their life that they're allergic to. In other words, when we are walking in the woods and we brush up against some poison ivy or poison oak, our body has an allergic reaction or we eat something it's not quite right and we feel it. But most of our allergic reactions are not to poison ivy or to food. They're to situations. I call them situations. <laughs> exactly. And we just got through the Thanksgiving holiday. People might. <laughs> exactly. So yeah. we have allergies to things in our life that we're yet not able to embrace. And there's a direct relationship that I have found between the frequencies or the different vibrations of the light spectrum that we perceive as color and the life spectrum. Light and life are two identical things in different forms. One is invisible and formless. The other one is visible and formed. So I just discovered this 45 years ago, accidentally, and so I've just been looking at that for years and I'm astonished today at the unique relationships. And so color can be used in a non-medical way to help people just begin to notice things about their life and to respect what's happening in their life and to gradually become comfortable with things that were uncomfortable. And when that happens, we get to breathe a little deeper. You call that in the book color homeopathy, correct? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so someone listening who's new to your work, I'm going to, of course, link up this beautiful book, Luminous Life, in the show notes. But do you have any wisdom? You've given us so much already. For someone listening to live what you call a full spectrum life, life, full spectrum life, how to begin? If someone is new to this whole concept, they're feeling kind of compressed and overwhelmed, where to begin? When one watches their television, they are impacted by what's on the screen. But they're observing it from their couch or their easy chair. And even though they're impacted by it, they realize they're not the TV. No one walks away thinking, oh, my God, I'm the television. Right. Yet when that television is a hemispheric screen in surround sound in the field of awareness, we have been conditioned to believe that we are that television. Mm -hmm. So we say, oh, that's my mind. I can change my mind. I don't mind it. In other words, I don't block it with the mind. One of the key discoveries is when you notice that some that there's thinking going on, 
take a moment to notice that you noticed it. Now, if it was you, you wouldn't notice that you noticed it. The reason you notice that you noticed it is because you and what's on the TV are not the same thing. The conscious mind is an archive of human conditioning over time. Our direct line, not only from the time of our birth, but the energetic roots of all of our ancestors. We think, oh, I do this because my father did this when I was four years old. We will never know the cause of our behaviors. It's been going on for millions of years. It's called evolution. So, and I don't feel like trying to play with the mind to change the mind is like putting a Band-Aid on a melanoma. Yep. It covers it up temporarily, and that does have some benefits. No question about it. But it doesn't take it away. What I have found is when there was a realization that my essence, whatever that is, is that which notices this thing we call mind, there was a revelation. It is a major revelation in meditation. The first thing they tell you to do, whether you're focused on a mantra or a flame or the tongue is on the roof of the mouth or you're just noticing your breath, you first notice, wow, that mind is chattering all the time. I can't get the damn thing to quiet down. The reason you notice it is because it ain't you, babe. It's, it's a function that's going on that something is noticing. And that noticer is the same thing that happens in lucid dreaming. All of a sudden, something is aware of the thing that you previously called your body sleeping on the bed. Or some other lucid type of example. What I'm sharing is, people shouldn't believe me, this is a real life experience. See if you can begin to notice that there's some space between that which notices the activity of the mind and the mind itself. And initially the space is very small. But the first time you notice it invites the second time. The second time, and after a while, the identification with who am I moves from the body and the mind to an observer that is not describable. Let's just leave it at that. And as that occurs, 
the mind quiets, but it isn't because you're using breathing work or all this to quiet it. It quiets because when you notice you're observing it, the tendency to interact with it lessens. Nobody's sitting and talking to their television. Once they, because they're sitting over there and there's the TV. It's an example of how it occurred in my life because in the late 70s, early 80s, after a very traumatic divorce and unexpected separation, I had panic attacks for years. Mm. And I thought I was going crazy because my mind would not stop chattering. So I've been in that place. I know that place. I know it by heart. A lot of my work today in helping people is because I have a familiarity with that terrain. So getting to the place that I experience much of the time now is not the place that was when I was terrified and so on. Um, so that's one of the things. It's not an easy thing. No. But it's really the key. It's really, really the key to getting home, not getting close to it, but actually coming home. That feels in my body as like a transmission, like a moment of presence, just saying that, that there's a felt sense in the body with that. Yeah. And I just really, um, Jacob, want to say thank you. You are so welcome. This is such a pleasure. It's been, um, it's been really wonderful. I'm curious. I'm going to link people to your book. Do you work with people? or I, I mentor a small number of people individually. Okay. Um, I do things like this and so on. And I still do consulting work. I've been working with a company, a medical device company, on developing a vision training, vision restoration device. So I'm interested in things like that that sort of perk up my, you know, come to me. So I give them to people to hopefully get them out into the world. But my, my big love is just having this kind of conversation and, and my mentorship work is just this. It's yep. not based on fixing because I don't think anyone needs fixing. Um, it's just based on coming together into a special level of, of friendship where things start happening and we don't know how. Living in the mystery. Living in the mystery, yes. Yes. Well, once again, just really thank you for your time and your presence and your wisdom. I'm just so grateful. And I know um, listeners to this podcast will be very pleased just to receive it as well. So thank you. As I used to say when I was a small child after experiencing something that was a lot of fun, can we do it again? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'd love that. I have so much more to ask you. Thanks a million. Have a wonderful day, and thank you for inviting me, and I look forward to this again. Wonderful. Thank and you. have a great Christmas. Thanks. All right. Be well. Thank you.